what I've been thinking about, really in this week, planning to be here today, but really for these past several months, is how to keep the heart afloat or uh, aloft or buoyant or uh, how to keep hope alive. It's, uh, uh, it's been, I think, my, my chief spiritual practice now for several years to think about how in the face of continuing challenge uh, from a world increasingly evidently in pain, it didn't start the pain of the world two years ago, but the awareness of the numbers of and the, the enormity of suffering in the world, uh, manifest suffering, not even suffering in the mind. I think the manifest suffering is actually a reflection of suffering in mind. But how to not become uh, exhausted by it or have a sense of futility about it, how to keep hoping, how to keep imagining. I'm thinking a lot about uh, John Lennon these days. Imagine. Imagine we could have another kind of world. Um, and how to really become not caught up in the despair that uh, weighs the heart down. It's easy to do that. So I've been reading Hope Magazine. Do you know Hope Magazine? Somebody brought it. There it is. Hope Magazine. And uh, I really recommend it to you. It comes out every other month. And it's got small stories about individual people who do amazing interventions in the world. They don't change the whole world, but they change a little piece of it. Um, I remember uh, I remember a story that... Uh, I remember this happened. That's uh, not so much a story, but... Uh, this happened to me, and it probably is 20 years ago, because it happened to me, I was sitting in, uh, on a retreat, I was a participant in a mindfulness retreat in uh, Santa Rosa, and a woman named Vimala Tarkar was uh, a guest at that mindfulness retreat. She uh, was an Indian woman in the tradition of Gandhi, uh, a, uh, an advocate for social change, who in the tradition of Gandhi really walked uh, from village to village throughout India, uh, instructing people, helping them, teaching them on how to organize as a collective, how to get together, how to farm together, how to share seed, how to do things communally, how to organize themselves as community uh, workers, and so have the support of the whole community rather than just the immediate family, and then be able to make some difference in the local politics village to village walking through, and she was a guest at this retreat because she was in this country doing some teaching about her work, and she was also known as uh, a person who had a tremendous uh, spiritual practice, that her own contemplative practice was very strong, and that was recognized about her. So my teachers invited her to the retreat that I was sitting on to talk, and she came, and uh, I remember her sitting up in front, and she led a sitting, and then afterwards, she didn't talk so much about what she was doing, but she took questions about what she was doing. People were very interested. And uh, at some point, someone said, what does your contemplative practice have to do with your social action, your social, social advocacy? And she said, it has everything in the world to do with it. She said, the suffering in India is so enormous. The degree of, of difficulty there is so enormous that I can't imagine getting up every morning and going on again, and doing it again, and doing it again, and doing it again, in the face of what looks like an absolutely insurmountable job, if I did not have this pl practice that restored for me both a place of resting and the awareness of hope that something could happen. 
And I'm even interpolating now, it's 20 years later, I don't remember exactly word for word that, that she said, but I would hope that she also said that if it doesn't all happen, something happens. That the gist of what I was learning yesterday, reading Hope magazine again, is that it doesn't have to happen that you fix everything in the world. In the moment of fixing one thing, that moment is redeemed. You have, we have one moment at a time to fix the world. And I can only do this moment here, now. If I fix this moment now, that's the biggest I can do. And it counts as the whole world if I really fix this moment. I, I'm just so inspired by this, that idea. You know, think of the Bodhisattva vow, uh, although suffering is limitless, I vow to end it. Although beings are limitless, I vow to end their suffering. You think, well, that's... Of course, that's a Tibetan thing, you might say. They get it, I don't get it. Or, you know, that, or that's a Zen thing. Actually, it's a Tibetan thing. But you know, there's a way out to say, that's a Tibetan thing, I don't get it. Or that's a Zen thing, they all speak in enigmas. But you know, <laughs> but, you know there are some times when I do get it, that I only have this moment to fix. And this person, or this whatever it is in front of me, maybe my own heart to fix. So I was thinking about it yesterday, I was thinking, I think there are two ways that we come, two particular pathways that we arrive at uh, being able to achieve that, re-achieve that balance that allows us to enter the next moment fairly clear and rekindle the hope that life is possible. Let me see if I can remember the two of them. One of them came from a, um, looking at a book by... Uh, a man named Tobin Giblin, who teaches uh, right here in Marin County, uh, in Mo Valley. This is called The Art of Mindful Living. And uh, the quote that he has on the, on the cover page is, uh, doesn't say that it's from uh, uh, Swami Satchidananda, but I'm fairly sure that it is. It says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. So uh, it is Swami Satchidananda, isn't it? Uh, This is one particular page that I opened up to. It says, if life weren't hard enough in addition to physical and emotional pain, we also find that a great deal of resistance and aversion automatically arises in response to those feeling states, unpleasant feeling states. So he's already said, we have physical pain that happens, we have emotional pain that happens, and when it happens, we're further upset that it happened. You know, that, oh, now this is here. And we push it away. He said, uh, on some level, we're like sea anemones. We have very sensitive tentacles inside. And if anything painful touches those tentacles, we automatically react with aversion and resistance. We're not willing to abide directly in our felt experience. We're clamping down, literally contracting our whole being. We can experience this in tension and tightness in our body. And he goes on to talk about it. And he said, the, the counterbalancing to that, tightening down, is a willingness to intend, a willingness to intend to meet each moment fully, not to shut down to it, say, okay, I make room for this, okay, I make room for this, okay, I make room for this. Then he goes on to say, in the Zen center where I studied and practiced, one of the lines in the daily chant was, life as it is, the only teacher. We were constantly reminded that no matter what experience we were having, our job was to be with it in the moment. Even if what we were in touch with was frustration or anger or grief or depression or rage or anxiety or pain or humiliation or jealousy or boredom or illness, we were adamantly encouraged to willingly feel every bit of what was flowing through us. 
And then he goes on to say, when I heard that, often when I thought about it, I thought, no way. But um, then he said, he thought to himself at one point, I finally got ready to do it because he said to himself, for millennia, all of the Zen masters said it was a good thing to do, so maybe I'll try it. <laughs> so I want to talk about two things that come out from there. One of that, one of them is, what good does it do to do that? Sit through it if he can. And what if he can't? Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to sit through this, I'm going to open to this experience. I can remember a really important moment for me in my own practice, sitting somewhere, actually, the, the, the recollection I have is I was in Barry, and who knows what the particular pain was, whether it was physical pain or emotional pain, or spiritual pain. Pain, in some way, was my experience. I was sitting on my sofa. I was very unhappy. I, didn't, I just wanted to be finished with it. And it suddenly came to me that I was struggling with it. And, you know, I got, how many times had somebody said, stop struggling, just be with it, allow it to be part of your experience? I said, okay, I'm open. I said to myself, not out loud, I said, I am open to this pain. I'm open to this experience. And I heard actually a voice in my own mind say back in the same stentorious tones, who do you think you're kidding? Because, <laughs> because in, in truth, I mean, it's very counterintuitive to say, I'm open to this. You know, we're not, you know. Take it away. Lift this burden from me, is what we say. That's not what we want. But it's what we got, you know. I'm actually, I, I, I know that this is the way through. And so what I'm going to get around to talking to the other half is what if I can't do that way through now, then what? On the way to this being the way through. But why should it be the way through? What good does it happen? And I see it as two particular immediate branches of good. One of them is, I think, a very big piece of the habitual see an enemy. Isn't that a good metaphor, that see an enemy? Go, you know, just, if you go, I, I don't know if it's see an enemy, but if you go to the uh, uh, aquarium in Monterey where they have all those ex uh, exhibits where you can touch starfish and other kinds of sea animals, and you touch them, and they right away close up. You know, it's a, really a wonderful mechanism. Or you touch a turtle, and it takes in all its feet and gets into its shell. So it's a very adaptive mechanism. I mean, and human beings do that as well. We cringe. So how to, what's the value of uh, being able to stop that intuitive response? It seems to me that part of the cringe Part of the cringe is the, probably the uh, just the neurological response to pain, like that. Part of the cringe of the mind against thoughts coming up, recollections coming up, memories coming up. I think part of the cringe is a fear. I won't be able to deal with this. It will be too terrible. I won't be able to stand it. I think the biggest part of the cringe is fear of what if I can't deal with this. Don't you think? The biggest worry in life is, what if I won't be able to deal with this? It may be actually the fundamental worry all the time. What if this is too hard? What if I can't do this? Sometimes I think it's my fundamental worry, whatever it is next online to do. Sometimes I think even in, the, in psychology, in, uh, in what we think about as normal, healthy developmental psychology, I remember reading Erickson as... as the great-granddaddy of um, ego psychology and developmental periods. 
And they're called developmental hurdles, developmental challenges. You have to, you get born, you have to start doing something. You have to develop this, and you have to master that, and you have to master this, and you have to master being on your own, and you have to be separate from your parents, and you have to figure out what kind of a person you are, and you have to figure out how you're going to make your way in the world, and who you're going to share your life with if you're going to have an intimate partnership, and how you're going to maneuver through this life. And each of them is a developmental hurdle. I remember uh, uh, some years ago, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book called uh, uh, Death, the Final Stage of Growth. And I thought, oh, please, you know, at some point we should be able to coast, you know, (laughs) not have to grow until the very last moment. But I'm actually afraid that we do, you know. We don't get away with it. Actually, one of my daughters yesterday, I was talking about getting old, and she said, well, I'm watching how you're doing it, because I'm going to have to know how to do it by watching you. And I thought, oh, dear, am I doing this well enough? (laughs) She will, I hope, be around to watch me die, and I'll have to do that well till the last minute we don't get off. But I actually tell you that because I feel good about it. It bucks me up to think about I've got that job to do. I'll have a job to do till the end. But... On the other hand, we don't get a moment off. But then I think, okay, if they, each of these are developmental challenges, they're challenges that everybody has always done forever because we all get born and we all die. So it's not that everybody doesn't do these same challenges. And they all require a, a giving up, and they all have a certain gift in them, each of them all the way along. And maybe the gift, uh, this is for sure the gift, I think, of being with difficult mind and body states as they come up and being able to be open to them, staying with them, sensing them, appreciating the pain of them. And sometimes the great pain of them is twofold. One is you get to see that you can do it and that life is a manageable enterprise. I actually think probably that's the most immediate gain. Maybe it takes away some of the fear that we thought we couldn't do it, but we could. You know, I won't do this, but I'm sure that if we were to take a poll of how many people here have had, uh, probably lots of us have had our parents die, how many people had siblings die, children die, partners die, a lot. How many people here have had... um, serious, life-threatening illnesses themselves. A lot. I can't be in a room full of people this age and know that that's not true for everybody here. And before anybody had any of those, if someone had asked you the question, how would you deal with it if such a thing like that happened to you? You'd say, oh, that would be the most terrible thing. I couldn't deal with it. And everybody dealt. Everybody's still here. That that's it. We think we can't deal with it. And then it happens, and we can deal with it. And when we do it, it's a piece of um, spiritual equipment. I actually think that the troubles that we have in life are the requisites for spiritual growth, and not deterrence to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if only this hadn't happened to me in my life, I would have really done my spiritual practice. I think this is the spiritual practice. And sometimes I think we, you know, that. Uh, there's an organization called Veterans of Foreign Wars. I think we're all veterans of personal life, or that somehow we've been through these uh, challenges. All of us 
Am I going to be able to stay here and stay awake and do this? I remember overhearing uh, my teachers, one of my teachers, in a teacher discussion that I just happened to be privy to because I was folding dishcloths in the corner of the room. All of my, t- it was a yogi job on a retreat. I'm folding the, dish, the cloths and I'm listening to them talk about And the topic of conversation, then, and it might be now, is what inspires your practice most. Uh-huh. And I mean, that's, that's what we talk about now. We're still talking about the same thing. What inspires your practice most? And somebody said, I'm practicing to have a um, even more, um, more refined understanding of suffering more closer, more depth understanding of suffering. And I actually didn't get it in the moment. I thought, oh dear. Um, That actually I was hoping to sort of transcend suffering or get away from suffering or finish with suffering. I didn't want more. I didn't want a closer understanding of suffering. Um, But actually, I think I get it now. I think it's not one of those enigmatic, strange sayings. I think that um, to the degree that I, even as I say it to you now, I get it that the closer understanding of suffering includes for me both the seeing of the suffering in me that's a result of the habits of my own mind. And the closer I understand that, the more I am able to tease apart what's the pain of the experience and what's the suffering that I bring to it and not do the suffering part. Just have the pain part, which could be extreme. I used to actually not have such a good understanding of the difference between them. And um, I, I think I actually hoped when I started that pain would be gone, that I would transcend it in some way. That doesn't happen, actually. I think, I think actually I feel pain perhaps more. Um, and I hope happiness also and joy more. I think I get what uh, athletes would call a larger range of motion, a broader range of motion. So I think that that's the closer understanding of suffering, how the suffering that I experience in any moment is the pain of that moment, plus the different habits that contract me more that come into play around that pain, and being able to discern those habits and not do them so much. Maybe not do them at all, but not do them so much is a good help. It's on the way. Um, So that, I think, is one, certainly maybe at this moment for me, the clearest part. The other, which is not fair, actually, even to rank them in importance, because I think this other is so important, that when I see that when when I am confused in any way, when I am suffering, I not only can't take care of myself well, I can't take care of anything else well. My heart is not available to me, really. I can't comfort myself when I'm suffering. I can't comfort anybody else, either. And in the way that I understand that, I begin to actually... uh, see the suffering of the world as the community of confusion of beings like myself who aren't able to cut through our own confusion and comfort each other helps me to keep people it helps me it doesn't prevent me from making some people into villains and other people into heroes but it helps me at least um, not keep the anger aloft in my mind or my heart so that at least I'm uh, not burdened by anger, I'm burdened more by concern. Makes me more want to be helpful, more want to take part in the events of the world. I look at the world and I think it is suffering so badly here. You know, that if uh, 
Um, I've, I've been uh, teaching all over about the image of um, um, a baby in a baby basket on the doorstep. It's a little bit like my telling you earlier about uh, having seen that uh, a photo on the front page of the New York Times yesterday. It came back to my mind as we were sitting. I realized that that photo was in the middle of the first page of yesterday's New York Times. If you can go online and look it up yesterday, photos in the middle of the front page of the New York Times. There's a color photo. Around it are all stories about greed, hatred, and delusion, deceit, war, animosity, the, the, everything terrible around it. It's like greed, hatred, and delusion are alive in the world. But in the middle of it, in the heart of it, actually, if you want to think literally, are these two men. I love this because, you know, the metasutta says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, and I am determined that we not make this a gender issue. So I love it that there are two men standing in this photo, uh, and one up on garbage pails, I'm sure he's, and, and the other one lifting up to him a baby sparrow that he's putting up into a nest because it's fallen out. And I, I was thinking as we sat here, does that mean that some people put baby sparrows back in nests and other people make war? Or that the same minds that make wars and deceits and corporate uh, injustices and malfeasances, do those same minds also stop and pick up baby birds? And I actually would like to think that they do, that everybody has the same range of motion. Not bad guys and good guys, but people. Because it's much more hopeful if I think that way, you know, that not then we have the, the good people against the bad people, but people who are, for some reason, rather frightened into this end of their range of motion, and that somehow they can get comforted back into the other end of the range of motion, and remember that they also like to put birds back into the nest, which is maybe the next step to remembering that they'd like to fund the schools and the libraries and and share the wealth of the planet around in a different way, but, but that it's in the same heart. And it's heartbreaking for me, this is another heart word again, but it's heartbreaking to think that we actually do have that same heart, and that for whatever reason we've tilted over in a, a peculiar direction in the world, and that each of us individually has that heart. And so that's why I've been telling people the, uh, the image of if you used to be a cartoon where you open a door and you find a baby basket like that on your front steps and it's got a baby in it and it's got a note that says, uh, I can't take care of this baby, please take care of it. And it, it, it's on your doorstep. And we would all pick it up, wouldn't we? Especially if baby was crying, we'd pick it up. Might not keep it with us if we you know, didn't have the situation, but we would pick it up, we would comfort it, we would try to get it warm, we'd get something for it to eat. If we couldn't personally take care of it, we'd call somebody and say, look, help me take care of this, what should we do with this baby? What would be a safe place to take it? Everybody would do that. I am convinced of that. So I would like to say that I think the world is in that sort of a shape. It's like a crying baby that's not well cared for. And uh, it needs to be uh, fed and um, cleaned up a little bit and held and taken care of. And um, If we open the door and found the world in a basket, we'd take care of it. I think we do. We open the door. If we don't look down on the step and we look out, there's the world in its basket, all suffering. And we go out and take care of it. And that's my other understanding of I want a more refined understanding of awareness of suffering. If I look out at the world, 
and I see it's in pain, then I venture out into it in a different way. There, there's, it's become um, a, a, a kind of a phrase to say that people who are um, physicians or nurses or um, health practitioners are uh, uh, generally in the label of the helping professions. But what if we were all? We, got, we all are helpers, you know? I uh, went to a guitar concert this morning at 7.30 because my granddaughter plays guitar in the fourth grade. And um, I see all the teachers there who are there way early. And I think these teachers are raising the children of the whole next generation. They are the helping profession. Everybody who meets anybody during the day, which is all of us, are the healers of the world. So that's how that one, I'm folding the dish towels, Sometimes a line goes in my mind and it stays there for 30 years. What does that mean? A more depth understanding of suffering. I want a closer understanding of suffering. I want to understand my own so I don't do those habits so much. And I want to see that the world is suffering so that I take care of it more. And I'm not embittered about it. It's, at least for me, tremendously easy to become embittered, to become cynical. It's really interesting. I have enough friends who send me... um, uh, things to read off alternative um, websites, uh, radical thinkers and radical writers, and some of them are great writers, and uh, some of them are outstandingly uplifting and great writers, and some of them are great writers with a very trenchant and embittered style. <laughs> and it's hard to read them without getting fired up and angry, and I'm a little bit seduced because they're such good writers. And uh, it's not good for my health, though. You know, it's not, I just don't think it's uh, good for me to be angry. That I want to read you a little piece of something that somebody sent to me. I actually don't know the whole book. It's a book by Lawrence Vanderpost. But it's just as well that I know the whole book. It's called A Far-Off Place. And uh, it's a story about uh, some disruption in, uh, historically in a place somewhere in Africa where the 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 people who were hurt and uh, were in exile for a long time, driven into exile. Everyone lost. Our people, too, were slaughtered, killed in thousands, moreover driven into exile. But here they are coming back. And this is just one paragraph. But on the day we returned to our capital, we kept our people and a delegation of generals waiting so that we could first pray in a chapel in the pass that leads to this city. We had to pray there alone, with ourselves lying prostrate on the ground, and you will understand, I'm sure of it, crying with gratitude at such goodness after a life of such suffering. We prayed so that all bitterness could be taken from us and we could start the life for our people again without hatred. We knew out of our own suffering that life cannot begin for the better except by us all forgiving each other. For if one does not forgive, one does not understand. And if one does not understand, one is afraid. And if one is afraid, one hates. And if one hates, one cannot love. And no new beginning on earth is possible without love, particularly in a world where people increasingly do not know how to love. Do not only, not only do not know how to love, but cannot recognize it when it comes searching for them. The first step towards this love, then, must be forgiveness. Will you, can you, therefore, forgive us all? 
That's very good, isn't it? I was very glad that I don't have the whole book. The, the friend of mine who sent it to me had quoted it to me on the phone. And I said, I really would like to have that. You know, can you send it? She said, oh, I'll email it to you. And here it said, hi, Sylvia. I didn't want to type these quotes onto the computer, so I'm sending you the quote. I read you over the phone the other day. And she sent it. So it's from a book called A Far-Off Place. But I don't know who the people in exile are, and I don't know who they're returning to. But I thought that's great, because then it, make, it makes it a generic story, that we are all in exile from someplace and going back to somewhere, and in need to repair and ask forgiveness, and ask ourselves that we forgive. I think that's so... I'll read it to you again, those few lines. You tell me which you think is... I've already given away, but all right. I'm going to read you just those few lines. You like them, don't you? I like them. I'm reading this to you. We knew, out of our own suffering, that life cannot begin for the better except by us all forgiving one another. For if one does not forgive, one does not understand. If one does not understand, one is afraid. And if one is afraid, one hates. And if one hates, one cannot love. And no new beginning on earth is possible without love, particularly in a world where people increasingly not only do not know how to love, but cannot even recognize it when it comes searching for them. The first step towards this love, then, must be forgiveness. (laughs) Sherry, would you put that on the website? I'll give it to you. Okay, there you go. Uh, I get that in this moment. Do you get that? When I have not forgiven, there's a space that where I am holding off. I read a new book yesterday. Oh, it's a book called Learning to Pray. It's by... um, Wayne Muller, who lives here in Marin County, has written some really wonderful books. So it's a um, uh, meditation on uh, on the Lord's Prayer. It's quite lovely. Um, and the, the and uh, for each petition of the Lord's Prayer, it's a discussion of it. And um, in the discussion of um, and we forgive those who trespass against us. He tells a story about working with a group of people. Uh, as he does in small groups of people. He's a, a, a skilled counselor and chaplain. And, and somebody who, in the course of her own uh, healing, really had to come to name uh, the pain that she had, in fact, suffered tremendously at the hands of her own mother and really seriously been hurt, abused by her mother, and really um, talk about it, feel it, experience it. And they came uh, at some, and um, was feeling considerably healed. I'm trying to remember. I wanted to say it exactly right. And, he said, and uh, at some point, I think perhaps at the end of some session, they were going to pray that prayer together. And um, I, I think maybe she spoke up and said she could not forgive her mother. And um, I think at some moment, I want to do this exactly right. So uh, he said, in some moment of intuitive um, inspiration. He said, uh, well, when we say it together, let's say her name is Kathleen or something. It would have been this guy's name anyway. He said, well, let's all say it together. And uh, when we come to that line, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, let's all say out loud together, except for Kathleen's mother, who is unforgivable. <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm 
it's wonderful, it's brilliant, isn't it? Because they did it, and it, it, it came to her in that moment that that's brilliant. I mean, it's, a, it's such a bizarre, I mean, to imagine that what's, the, you know, that, that your own peace of mind hanging in the balance, that that would, it does not require forgetting or denying or not staying as the absolute truth. I have been wounded. But the, really the person who is saved by forgiving is the forgiver. The other person is out there having a life. Doesn't know whether it's happening or not happening. It all happens here. I'm not sure that the whole of our life doesn't happen exactly right here. I think a lot about forgiving. It's a wonderful new book, by the way, Wayne's book. I really like it a lot. I want to tell you the other path that I was thinking about in terms of what, what's the other way that we work with being present for an experience um, and not have the enormity of the pain and the grief and the gruesomeness of it overcome us. And I, I'm really interested in talking about this side of the, this path because I think sometimes people imagine that the way of mindfulness is um, enduring at all costs the depth of pain that's uh, accessible to us unmitigated, um, it's kind of saying, here I am, just roll over me forever and ever. The pain of the world being enormous and without end. And I think actually the pain that we touch in our personal lives being the way that we touch into that enormity of cosmic pain, that if only, if that were our only way in which we could be uh, present moment to moment, I don't know that we wouldn't be bowled over by the enormity of that vision. I think that in addition to, I I tend to think around it as a container for it, but not sure it's around it or next to it or under it or somewhere, I think is the the other awareness that we can have in addition to the cosmic degree of pain that's true is the amazing creativity of life itself and of human beings that that uh, throughout the year we look out here one way or another and there are always moments where everybody does, <gasps> remember a few weeks ago there was a really baby fawn that went by. We're used to the middle-sized fawns. We don't even get upset, you know, excited about them anymore. But the real babies. <gasps> Did you see the moon the last three nights? The moon these three nights is the best moon. I love the beginning three nights of the moon. Next days of the moon, ah, ordinary moon. Then the full moon is a big deal. And then the end of the moon is always so exciting that it knows to disappear in that way. You know, There are things that lift up the heart about the regularity of creation, the, the, the extraordinariness that if you look at the calendar, you will know what, where exactly on the horizon the sun will rise tomorrow and it will be there evermore in that place on the horizon, on the state. And they knew it when they built Stonehenge, and they knew it when they built the Mayan um, observatories in, in, in Mexico. They knew it way back. And that kind of uh, exciting way in which creation is dependable and recreates itself, and the creativity of the human mind, and the things we can do. I, I know for the last several weeks I've been talking about taking refuge in Haydn, and Mozart, I want to tell you, I want to read you a little piece. Oh, where is it, where is it? Having taken my notes out of here, and it was holding my place. Wait, wait, wait. 
The name of the book is The Industry of Souls by Martin Booth and The description. The description of a place. I had a place to go of which none of the others had so much of as an inkling. I kept it quite to myself, never spoke of it to them, never admitted its existence. It was a garden. Where it was, in which country of which continent, I neither knew or cared. It contained rainforest ferns and stalwart oaks cacti and roses, lilac wisteria, and lianas as thick as your wrist. Verdant lawns ran between copses of ash and elm, acacia, and baobab. Desert palms grew next to rocky mountain pines. The pathways, of which there were many, were graveled with chips of gray granite, strewn with shingle pebbles, mixed with seashells, or paved with Carrera marble. Here and there, overlooking magnificent vistas, were erected small rustic shelters, miniature Greek temples, and grottoes of rough-hewn stone. In a matter of meters, I could pass from the close, luxuriant foliage of the Amazon basin into the leaf-strewn mellowness of a European beech wood. At the center of my secret property, the size of which I never ascertained, there was a substantial water garden covering an area of about two and a half hectares. The pool was shaped roughly like a dumbbell, the bar between two weights, as it were, traversed by an ornamental bridge, not placed centrally, but three-quarters of the way down along toward the eastern end, lay down according to the rules of an ancient oriental geomancy, of which I was ignorant. On and on and on and on. Over the gulag years, I frequently visited this garden. Sometimes I went there in the early morning when the dawn, when the dawn mist drifted over the surface like the breath of the spirits of my departed enemies. It was then, if I was lucky, I caught a glimpse of the cerulean kingfisher with amaranth wings mottled with jade. It's a very long, very beautiful description of a secret garden invented in the mind of a person who spends years in a gulag. So this is actually, it's a novel, so it's not a biography of a person. So it's created in the mind of the novelist, but it so inspired me, just as music is created in the mind of a composer, about the intuition that Martin Booth has about what it is that keeps people alive under the direst of circumstances. I read this book, and I had such a hard time. It's an almost unbearable book to read, and the minute that I finished it, a friend of mine gave it to me for a present. And I read it because I couldn't put it down. It's unbearable to read because it has descriptions of how it was for people in the gulags. So maybe not uh, this person's description because this person is fictitious, but it actually is true that thousands and thousands of people spent decades, this particular person working in coal mine underground, decades underground in Siberia, and came out and rejoined the world afterwards. And the, the, the descriptions of the incredible cruelty that people showed to each other. 
I've read other books that are descriptions of people who actually were in the gulag and, and survived, so they're real-life descriptions. And so I know that this is not anything other than, it's not different from the kinds of abject cruelty. And it's so hard to read them because you think it's impossible for my mind to get around the fact that somebody might actually do this to another person, willingly or and the, the reason I read it from the beginning to the end is, first of all, the, the writing is so compelling. It's magnificent writing. And the intuition about what kept people alive, you know, the ability in the most dire circumstances to remember the beauty of creation, to remember life as it was. That particular description occurs for the first time almost at the end of the book, and it's part of a description of the workday in the coal mine that was punctuated by periods where people could put down their uh, axes and have a 20-minute break, leaning against, sitting on the floor of a coal mine two kilometers under the ground, um, leaning against the wall. So it's, it's, it's preceded by saying everybody was thinking their own thoughts. And he looks across and he says, so-and-so's probably thinking this, and that one's probably thinking that, and that one's thinking that, and this one's thinking that. I was thinking about my garden. And the notion that we can, under any circumstance, remind ourselves there's some, there's some extraordinariness about this life experience. I ended up, by the way, sending away for half a dozen copies from Amazon and then sending them to all my six <laughs> most immediate people I thought of who would like it. Um, I remember one time when I was sitting in Barry, doing some very intensive practice and uh, going to talk to my teacher uh, at, at some time, I don't remember exactly how this insight had occurred to me, but it was a very profound insight about the, the ubiquitous nature of suffering, how much suffering is the very fabric of life that we wish so much that it were other. We have such good intention in how our own minds, my own mind, because of its habit, is continually tying itself in a knot that undies. This knot unties, yet here comes another one. This knot unties, here comes another one. No end to the knots in the mind. And the way in which we make difficulties in our lives and the lives of other people because of the knots in our own mind, all of us, and certainly mine. And I, rem I remember going and talking to my teacher about it. And I went to see Joseph, and I was talking to him about it. And I said, uh, I was really blown away by it. I was... And he listened to me, and everything that I said, he said, it's true, it's true, it's true. And then when I was all finished, he said, very seriously, he said, uh, be very sure not to let this insight into suffering condition an aversion to life experience. And he said it to me just as I was going out of his room. And I thought to myself, after I left the room, I thought, how should I do that? You know, it was an instruction. But you didn't tell me how. How should I do it? Because I really despaired. And I think actually it comes down to the, that. That really comes down to uh, really where I am thinking these days about how to do it. What I really wanted to say this morning, which I think I've now successfully said, is I think the two ways to do it is to be with one's experience when one can, pain and all, and to discover the absolute uh, extraordinary ability of the the human spirit to be with it, to unfrighten ourselves about the pain and grief and suffering in our lives, 
to continually and continuously and forever and ever decondition ourselves from being afraid of it. Not to be afraid. Say, this is what happens. Just really, I don't think we're, um, I don't think actually it's at all hardening our heart to pain. I think it's opening it and maybe eventually opening it so it's transparent to it. Feels it, but says this is the way it is. Maybe that's the direct path to wisdom. And certainly to support it, keeping the channel open. If my heart is open to that, then it will be open as well for the extraordinariness of life experience. So that uh, when I uh, got out of my car late last night, I could look up and say, oh, look at that moon. It's the third day of the moon. It's a great moon. Today will be the fourth day of the moon. It will be a little bit more. And in that moment, noticing that my heart picks up. So if I don't go to a secret garden, I go to the moon or Mozart or uh, guitar concerts at 7.30 in the morning or people putting sparrows back in their nests, two people taking some time off from their morning, going to work to put a sparrow back in its nest or calling a friend or holding a hand. Also talk about what if you couldn't open up to that experience. The, 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 what I hoped I would do, by, I, I hoped I was doing that by, by talking about the secret garden. Uh-huh. When I cannot go straight forward, then I look for Mozart or moons or guitar concerts or coming here. When I came in this morning and I sat here, there is for the moment the sense, specious as it is, that the whole world is sitting somewhere just like we are. You know, because this is my whole world at this moment. I can't see past here, except that I have memory. Everybody in the world is sitting down wishing well to each other. And so for a moment, I'm held up. It doesn't matter that there's a whole world out there. Six billion other people, some of them loving and taking care of. I think the whole world is full of consolers taking care of each other. And there are people in difficulty and people confused. And the consolers will have to console enough and unconfused enough so it gets different because there isn't an alternative. Actually, I'd, I'd, I'd like for us to do a moment of metta hope together. Um, I was thinking yesterday about a time, I've told this story here a lot, I think, and I hear James starting to tell it now. We're both telling the story of the time in Hawaii when we sat next to each other in a scary moment in our personal history. It's too long of a story, but Anyway, at a retreat on the coast of Hawaii, at which there was a tidal wave uh, alert, and we thought we might all drown in the next hour. So we sat, but uh, he and I held hands for the sitting, which was a really nice way to sit. So I would like to invite you to hold hands with the person next to you. (laughs) Just because it's nice to hold somebody's hand. Maureen, you want to sit over here? I'll hold your hand. Everybody holding a hand, hold somebody's hand. Somebody's hand caught us when we got born. Someone else's hand is going to take care of us when we're, life is finished. In between, it's a lot of hands that we hold. So let's make the prayer for the world that everybody find a hand to hold that supports them and that cares that they feel protected and safe and contented and pleased. That in this moment, their strength supports their ability to be in this moment. And their life unfolds in the way that it does, in a heart that's open 
and able to receive it. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of the suffering. And may the merit of our practice together be given as an offer for the well-being of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.